summer cloud bloomed and climbed into the sky above a warm city. Within the cloud, moist air swirled and tiny droplets of water gathered. They condensed and formed a perfect, glittering raindrop. Suddenly, too heavy to be upheld by the rising currents of air, the raindrop fell from the cloud. As it sped towards the ground, a swallow circled it, chasing a snatched meal of insects. The raindrop and the bird conversed in a slow, sun-haunted language as they lived out their day, measured in immense moments of thought for brief seconds. The raindrop said, How amazing in this blue universe in which I exist. I look around and observe that I came from the cloud above me and that I'm falling to the earth below. Is it not incredible that I, a thing made of air and sunshine, can understand my origins and my end? The swallow replied, We are indeed fortunate to have the ability to comprehend our lives in terms of their beginning and their conclusion, but it is not advisable to dwell over much on what lies beyond the ends of a twig if one wishes to grasp it in one's beak. You're a wise bird, said the raindrop. If you have no objection, perhaps we could discuss the matter of my place in the great scheme of being, whilst we sojourn in the sky. Indeed, I have plenty of time, said the swallow, and it is a pleasant way to spend the moments while I await the hatching of gnats. What would you like to debate? Sky Machine by Martin Liddiment Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Liddiment Chapter 2 Broken on the Wheel It seems to me, began the raindrop, that all this must have been ordered for reasons beyond my knowledge. The cloud I was born in was just at the right height and had called to just the right temperature to allow my form to materialise. The tiny grain of dust at my core was in just the right place to attract the molecules of my watery body to it, otherwise I should not be here at all. Can all this be mere coincidence? If one of those conditions had been absent, I would never have existed. Surely there was a purpose. Don't you see the hand of a designer at work? The difficulty here, observed the bird, is that you speak from the perspective of one who looks behind you, back up to the place of your origin and imbue it with a significance it does not really have. Could you have been anything other than what you are? given the fact that clouds produce raindrops? Well, you speak as though you've been placed here, when in fact you are the inevitable conclusion of a series of natural events. You see, purpose in the cloud and permission in nature, I, with the advantage of my perspective as an independent observer as raindrops, see only a rising and a falling of moisture from and to the buildings and streets below. You disturb me exclaimed the raindrop, twisting and shivering as it fell. No, I could have been a dash of sea spray, or 
a glittering moat of mist in the feathery trail of a high waterfall. But I'm here, not there. Consider this, said the swallow, that you could be nowhere but here, or else you would not be you at all but something else, another speaking droplet of water to be sure, but not the awareness, the consciousness to which I speak. The raindrop thought for almost a whole second, then it said, and if I were the only conscious raindrop in the whole of reality, why should this be? Why should I be favoured? Why should it be me that thinks and speaks? I am proud, but not so arrogant to believe I'm alone in the universe. Again, you talk as though you are put here by another agency, said the bird. You seem to believe that you had a choice in the matter. Why should it be amazing that the only raindrop is alone? Don't be frightened, it's just the way things are. And the swallow beat its wings, its bright eyes flashing just inches from the raindrop's silvery skin. Perhaps it's in the nature of thinking beings to always imagine there are others like them, it mused. Perhaps all intelligent things assume that because they are aware, they cannot be alone. Perhaps consciousness is a great burden. The raindrop cried a little inside, where it would never show. But the cloud, it said. My cloud. The cloud that was my home. Why would it create me, only to see me fall for no purpose? Did it create you? asked the swallow. Or did you simply form, as raindrops must, when the conditions were right, in the same way you must you not shatter on the ground as raindrops do? It's a terrible thing then, exclaimed the raindrop. You give me no hope, no comfort. I had thought to gain some understanding, some certainty from our conversation. The swallow sighed and began to describe a long graceful curve through the air, tracing the edge of a scything line and sweeping blade of movement down towards the city below. I am sorry I cannot make you happy, it said. Yours is a very raindrop-centred view of the world, but then mine is a very swallow-centred one, and I have the added problem of not knowing what came first, the original swallow or the original egg. At least I can assure you that you came from a cloud. And, it thought, to the cloud you will return. It would have tried to find a last few words to encourage its newfound friend, but had to rise to avoid the earth, pulling up from its flashing dive. And the raindrop struck the city pavement beneath the swallow's outstretched wings and broke into a thousand shining pieces. I put down the book I was reading, Modern Zen Stories. It had been an impulse buy at the airport. David Forrester was walking briskly towards me. He was on time. He looked different from the evening before. Angry? Perhaps? More worried? Certainly. We found the ticket office and jumped into the first available car. We'd agreed to meet in one of those giant wheels that they'd taken to putting up in cities like Helsinki. This example was similar to the London Eye, and the carriages were shaped like glass and steel parcels. It inched around extremely slowly, 
and if we had been inclined to study the view, then we'd have had plenty of time to stare, maybe take pictures. But that wasn't why we were there. I was relieved that David had agreed to meet me, and that he'd turned up as promised. Maybe there was some hope after all. But though I'd spent most of the night thinking about what to say, in the event, at that crucial moment, I found it almost impossibly hard to speak. I was stupid, I told myself. It was necessary to break the awkward silence as soon as possible. I said, Dr. Forrester, last night, when we spoke, I didn't mean that all the delegates at the conference are in danger. I meant that you and I are. It immediately sounded overdramatic and clumsy. He said nothing, just looked at me. So I said in a rush, I have something I need to tell you, and I really need you to hear me out. I couldn't risk talking in the hotel. It's safer here. He absorbed that. Sitting there in one of those pierced metal seats, his hands clasped loosely in front of his knees. He was watching me very closely. The car creaked and twanged around as the sunlight struck it and warmed the structure. Absurdly, I felt myself start to blush. This was not how I planned things to happen. We were supposed to have started an online correspondence on the Slack channel the group used. I was going to invite him and then introduce the idea that I had confidential research to discuss and then say that we needed to move to the PGP encrypted email. And that would have been a better way to start the conversation, but events had overtaken my plans. There was one of those armed guards in my room yesterday, he said. Do you know anything about that? I think so, I replied. He waited. And? He said, opening and spreading his hands, inviting an answer. That's the commodity in which we trade, isn't it? Answers. Or at least that's what people think. Scientists have the answers, supposedly. When it comes to material things that touch our lives, better smartphones, faster computers, safer medicines, we bundle all the other difficult questions into a class of their own. The impossible to know. And what is death? Why is there suffering in the world? And where did the universe come from? And when we make mistakes, we're reassured about our fallibility and feel happy that there's, I don't know, a final veil across our eyes that hides the truths that only some sort of God knows. No, the veil is more like a blindfold. We stretch out a hand in the dark and try to puzzle out what we're touching. What strangeness had I encountered in a summer when everything had changed? The morning light was buttery. It slid across the chrome rail from under the car's window. For a moment I felt disassociation, a sense of watching myself and this other scientist begin a strange experiment, a study of thoughts at the edge of reason. Susan. He was waiting for my answer. Two months ago, I asked my brother to help me with some work. I said, he was a computer scientist and an ex-hacker, an expert in cyber security. I paused. There was too much in those words and not nearly enough. Carl was brilliant. He worked freelance and was always busy, always in demand, I said. His speciality was preventative measures to guard against hacking and denial of service attacks. He always used to say that the less that happened to systems he worked on, the happier he was. He did do a good job. 
He'd put his past behind him and he was respected. I shook my head, remembering. I needed help on this project, I said. Kind of a reverse engineering job. I'd asked him to open a door that someone wanted to keep locked. Dr. Forrester, do you know about my group? He shifted his weight back and looked past me, out towards the horizon. To be honest, I didn't until last night. After you left, I googled you. He sighed. Susan, these conferences are like a microcosm of our entire discipline. And that itself is like something that has a dense core of specialist knowledge and then some hazier, less well-defined exterior and finally a few random ideas and memes buzzing about the periphery. Your group? Well, you're outside that periphery. Far outside. You appreciate that? I nodded. You believe that it's possible to manipulate the weather, to reverse global warming, even, and that governments are working on projects to do just that, to control the climate. That's an exaggeration, I replied. We never say control. He gave an impatient growl. Nudge, then. Encourage. Steer it in a different direction, through human intervention. I said, you don't agree, I know you don't. You've given enough interviews on the subject, the famous container ship analogy. He smiled slightly. You can't turn one of those quickly, he said. Yes, the climate's the same. What are you going to steer it with? Where's the helm? He was trying to be kind, but I could see and hear the anger in him. I found it hard to meet his gaze, so I followed his example from earlier, looked out the window, thinking I might get some inspiration. Across the diameter of the wheel, seen through a gap in the lattice work of its welded spokes and struts, two men looked back at me from another car. I glanced up and down quickly, as far as I could. The cars above us were, I remembered, empty when we got onto the wheel. The others that I could see into were also unoccupied. I turned my back on the men, moving in front of David to block their view of him. He hadn't noticed my anxiety. Susan, it's a conspiracy theory, he said. You're a scientist, you have a doctorate too. You know we don't deal in that sort of madness. Haven't we had enough trouble with anyone from the local radio journalist through to the President of the USA seizing on every statement by every person or group with an interest in the subject of climate change? All they want is the drama. It doesn't matter whether the debate is framed by false equivalences. It isn't of the slightest concern to them if we object when decades of careful research by an eminent professor get balanced by the bedroom theories of a flat-earth believer. They're after entertainment. It's a febrile environment. Why would you and your group want to feed that? There's too much at stake. He was frustrated with me. His voice became harsh. We automatically put ourselves at the centre of things. This is why it's difficult to accept that a set of events are random and just seem to have a significance. It's an illusion, Susan. Conspiracy theories come from the same perspective. They exercise us and at the same time they support us. They're toxic and they're comforting. 
He had finished. I could tell. Finished with me and what he considered my irresponsible behaviour. If I failed to convince him now, then I never would. I work with ocean currents, I said. In particular, their relationship to air temperature and pressure. I can't pretend that my research is anywhere as significant as yours. That was stupid and there was no need for it. All research is significant. Every data point is a contribution. I thought he might say that, but he just stared at me, listening. At least he was listening. But when you add my work to that of all the others in our group, you start to see the evidence emerge. There are projects underway on a scale that can cause a significant degree of nudging over enough time to affect significant change and affect the economy of an entire country. Assuming that nothing occurs to balance them, he countered. The overall system has too much global inertia, and country by country it's so locally dynamic that it simply can't happen. In your opinion, I said. In the majority opinion, he said. There's no compelling evidence that the Russians have been deliberately climate changing. Yes, they've been buggering about with the ionosphere to enhance low-frequency communications with their submarines, but that won't cause tornadoes in Washington. And the Chinese are dam building because they need the energy, not because they want to cause a drought in Japan. We have evidence, I said. Yes, we had evidence. Two years of meticulous data gathering, interviews, checking and cross-checking. Then publish it. I can't, I replied. The group has been prevented from finishing the work. I was looking for some final records, specifically a shift in a particular thermohaline circulation. I went to the Jason 1 archives in the Earth Survey part of the rock. Do you know about those? He nodded. They're the best resource, satellite imagery that goes back to, what, 2001? I used the rock extensively in my work. I had an account as soon as it went online. I realise that, I said, and that's partly why, why, we're having this conversation. And this was the bit I needed to get exactly right. I drew a deep breath. So, when I got stuck on The Rock's public homepage, I couldn't understand what was happening, I said. I checked my username and my password, and I thought at first it was something stupid, like a missing capital letter, but that wasn't it. I was locked out. So I raised a ticket with The Rock's support desk. Nothing. No email back, no text message, no call. I escalated it and still nothing. Then other members of the group started reporting that they were having similar issues. They were unable to get into the archives, and it was as if they'd never had accounts in the first place. I tried re-registering, but all I got was a message saying that I didn't meet the required criteria to use the database. He tapped his fingers on the rail. Did you consider the possibility of a system issue? He asked. I did. We did. We were all trying to establish whether this was something affecting everyone, or maybe even a broad subset of users. But there are 14 people in our group, spread around the world, all with accounts up at different times, and none of us could get in. 
There were no reports of outages or system glitches. We asked around, and other scientists could access it. The wider community said the rock was operating normally, so we know the rock is working perfectly. The scientific world is using it without any issues. Then why can't my group get access? David cleared his throat. He looked embarrassed. Have you considered the possibility that you've been collectively suspended because of your views? He asked. Because we're conspiracy theory nuts? I snapped. Because we're pushing the boundaries? No, because that's not the end of the story. Carl offered to help. I forwarded him all of our account details and he made a start. He was in India at the time on a job. And he was annoyed that I'd called him in the middle of the night. <sighs> Talking about it brought all the feelings back again. I was making the call, listening to his sleepy voice at the other end, teasing me about my lack of awareness of time zones. He had said he'd take a look, but that I was getting in a state over nothing. And then, David asked, after asking your brother to hack into a world-renowned US government system, what next? And then I got three text messages. The first said that he was in and making progress. The second came 16 hours later and said I must not try to use the rock under any circumstances. The third said that he was flying home and had to talk to me urgently, face to face. David frowned. And did you talk? He asked. I shook my head. His plane went down over Turkmenistan. Flight AIE-327. Ten days ago. It was on the news. That was the first time I saw David Forrester. Really saw him. He reached out and took my hands. Susan, I'm so sorry, he said. I apologise for my tone just now. I nodded and bit my lip. There was one final text, I said. From the plane. David started to say something, but I spoke quickly. It said, I love you, Susan. Run. And then it just said, Sky Machine. That was it. Nothing more. Of all the things he could have said in those last moments, why that? He was silent. There are two men watching us from the opposite side of the wheel, I said. Don't look. They've been following me since I arrived in Helsinki. Before that, I saw them twice in London, once in a cafe and once at the tower. I'd gone in with a party of tourists to see if they would as well. Don't ask me if I'm sure, as I am sure. To his credit, he did as I asked and stopped himself from looking at the men. He stared at the floor. David, Dr. Forrester, what do you think? He considered and then said, Armed guards at our conference, people that no one can explain. One of them in my room, searching for something. Your story. Honestly, I don't know. I thought, you're worried about inferring something. You don't like drawing significance from random events. But they've not been random. And I ran like my brother told me to. 
I ran, and then I found there was nowhere to go. Except here. Our car climbed to the top of the wheel. Helsinki lay spread out below us. It was as though we'd been hoisted up on high to see just how normal the world was. A city, its houses, office blocks and roads, a white-domed cathedral. The dark grey stroke where the Gulf of Finland edged the landscape. Above us, the clouds, the cumulus and the stratus. I still don't understand why you came to me, out of all the people at the conference, David said. Before Carl, before he tried to leave India, he emailed me a list of names he'd found in a subsidiary log file. His email said it wasn't part of the Rock's account management system and seemed to be a random thing. He felt it was odd that it had been retained because all the other log files were set to be automatically flushed. It was a very short list and your name was at the top. There's one more thing. Do you have an internet connection on your phone? He nodded. Try to log into your account. David, I'm really sorry about this, but I know that your username for the rock is swordfish3 with a zero for the O and your password is wellingtons also with a zero. He put his hand over his face and rubbed his eyes. Oh God, he muttered. Try, I said. Try to log on. He took out his phone and I watched him enter the information. Then he let out a long, angry breath. He held the phone towards me. The message on the screen said his account was suspended. Well, he said, that's an interesting superpower you have. The wheel had started its descent. We'd be back on the ground soon. I wished it looked more solid. The Sky Machine is written and produced by Martin Liddermont. Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Liddermont. Music by Purple Planet Music, Daniel Birch and the Pangolins. <laughs>